0: Looking to create wealth in commercial property, but don't know how to do it? Tired of negative gearing and not getting ahead? Well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Welcome to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. My name is Andrew Bean, and I'm here with the founder of Revolve Commercial, my trusty co-host, Mish Daniel. How are you doing, Mish?
1: Hey, Andrew. Lovely to be back on the show
0: with you. It definitely is. So, Mish, who do we have today?
1: We have an unbelievable guest speaker today, Mr. Alex Stefan from Alex Stefan Town Planning. And Alex shares some really, really hot tips on the do's and don'ts and what you really need to know about when you're buying a property. And you should be checking out the zoning, particularly if you've got an exiting tenant, you should really know from a town planning perspective what types of tenants you can put in there. Should it be a change of use, change of business, particularly if you're going to be looking for uh, upsiding and adding value?
0: Yeah, it was a really fun chat with Alex. Like we just laughed the whole time. So, I mean, yeah. if you really want to dive into it, where we're talking about mezzanines, like, you know, if it's approved or not. Council tools, zoning between New South Wales and Queensland, chains of use, land zoning, rezoning land. We even touch on NFTs, smart contracts, and crypto at the very end for a little bit. So it's a complete action packed uh, podcast, lots of information. And he's got a free giveaway for the listeners, which is the ultimate town planning checklist. So make sure you listen to the entire show and then we'll tell you about how you can download it at the end. So just listen to this whole show to grab that. It's basically the ultimate guide to town planning. What more do you need, Mish?
1: Absolutely. And that is gold. That little list that he's giving away is money for jam.
0: That's it. All right. Without any further ado, shall we bring him in?
1: Yes. Let's bring Alex in and let's get chatting.
0: Can't find any good deals? Revolve Commercial has you covered with the hottest commercial property picks every month delivered free straight to your inbox. Subscribe today at www.revolvecommercial.com.au. Sit back, save time, and have the deals delivered directly to you from Revolve Commercial. Alex Stefan, welcome to the show, mate. Hey,
2: thank you very much for having me.
0: All right, mate. So just for the listeners who don't know who you are, can you just tell us a little bit about your background in property and planning and things like that?
2: Yeah, of course. It's pretty long, but the summary is I am a, a private consultant town planner. So I essentially am the middleman between property developers and council. So we fight council for a living. Outside of that, which is my daily job, I also provide a lot of education and advocacy around town planning. So if you want to learn about town planning, I'm your guy. You fight town
0: planning for a living. I love that. You fight council for a living. i fight council well, for a living, by mistake. Well, yeah.
2: more correct. we. Work alongside council to negotiate the best outcomes for the community.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, very <laughs> that's diplomatic. Probably,
2: yeah, it's a <laughs> diplomatic version of, of what I do. <laughs> awesome,
0: that's mate. A very so,
1: polite way of putting it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's> it. <laughs> so, mate, town planning plays a huge role in, in residential and commercial property. So, for the listeners who are new to real estate investing, can you just explain what town planning is?
2: Yeah, so town planning is essentially, I suppose... It's the control of the growth of a city, basically. So the way that I like to say explain what town planning is, so like, if you get to your house and pull up and you've got a garage and there's two spaces and then you park your car and you can get out of your car door, car door doesn't smash against the wall, you can get out easily in your garage and then you walk out the front, go to the shops down the corner and then get a bus to the city, All of that has happened because at some point in time, a town planner has gone, you need to have this wide, you need to have a bus stop here, you can have a house there, but it needs to be this big. So everything that happens in your life has somewhat been planned out by someone who is most likely a town planner. That's not necessarily what I do. My job really is going through the hordes and endless lists of regulations and planning schemes and state acts to be able to decipher that, to tell you what you can and cannot do with a property. Whether that be you want to build a carport, or you want to build a 10-story commercial premises, or if you just want to buy a, a medical center and then turn it into an office. So all of those things at some point should involve a town planner.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I never thought of it like that. Um, I really like that, how like, you open the door and it didn't smash against the wall. So that was me. i can yeah, that out like, for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like someone literally went, if developers really had their way, they'll just make it as small as possible to get the most letable area. So at some point, some plan has gone, we need to stop that happening. Let's make them so they have to be six meters wide. and That gives it an allowance for any vehicle, 99 percentile, that they could still open their door and we'll make them do that. Otherwise, yeah, they won't. So yeah, it's crazy. If you really think about it top to bottom, like someone at some point's had input there.
0: And how does residential like town planning compare to commercial town planning? How do they differ? Everything in planning's
2: a little bit the same. It just depends how complicated it is. So something residential is a bit more easy because you've really, it's someone lives there and that's kind of all you need to worry about. Whereas when you get into commercial, there's, there's a lot of more moving parts. So you've got Is there enough car parking for the use? Is the use loud? Is there emissions like air quality or noise coming from the use? Does it need servicing? Does it need a loading bay? Do you need on-site maneuvering for that service vehicle? How big does it need to be? So there's just a a lot more moving parts when it comes to commercial, but it's really more about when it comes to commercial, it's really about changing the use. If you're not changing the use or it's in an area that doesn't require approval, it's a lot more simple. So a lot of house extensions will trigger a DA, whereas a lot of changes of use in commercial uses don't. So that's where we don't really need to get involved.
1: So your role as a town planner in commercial is really going to council and batting for the vendor or the owner of a commercial property to make those changes for maybe new tenants or change of use. How would that work?
2: Yep. That's right. So when it comes to commercial buying, there's a lot of ways that we would get involved. Probably the most common one is when people buy commercial premises, they want to make sure that you can actually have flexibility with your tenants in the future. So a perfect example, earlier today, I had an inquiry for a property that where someone was operating an office out of a house, which is fine. It has approval for an office, but now it's actually in a low density zone and they want to operate a beauty salon out of that premises because it's in low density, but it's got an approval for an office, it can only operate as an office. If you want to change the use to a beauty salon, all of a sudden we're talking $20,000 of application fees, six months of delays, and then potentially at the end of all of that, council say no. Our role for commercial buying is just making sure that you're buying what you think you're buying and that you're allowed to have a bit of flexibility with your tenants once you have acquired the property. So all of that's very important. And then the obvious things, making sure that what's actually built there is what they actually had approval for, which in commercial and industrial is a bit of a Wild West area. (laughs) So,
1: Alex, do commercial buyers, you get those kind of calls from commercial buyers with more vacant properties or properties that are currently tenanted, maybe exiting tenants with regards to their change of use?
2: Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So we do a lot of property development, medical centers, shops, mixed use developments, and they're from the ground up. So they're people looking to acquire commercial or any kind of commercial property and build something new. So that will always, I'm trying to think of any situation where you wouldn't need a town planner in that circumstance, but I think you'd always need a town planner (laughs) there. I reckon the most common call I get from people buying commercial property is about a mezzanine level and they want to know whether the mezzanine level was approved or not. So yep. that would be like, we get a couple of week of people going, I'm buying this warehouse. We have a tenant who does this. And we notice that there's a mezzanine there that looks newer than the building. Has that been approved? And we look at it and I'm going to say 90% of the time it hasn't. <laughs> so <laughs> that's probably how I get the call, I reckon.
1: It's yes. actually fascinating. And I just want to go down that little rabbit hole for two minutes because you get asked and 90%, the answer is No. I see buildings, and I can tell you probably 90% of buildings, most certainly on the Gold Coast with mezzanines, are probably not approved. So what do you do in that case? Because, I mean, the fact that a lot of these mezzanine builds are fairly strong structurally, they've been tried and tested, but now that there's a, a new sale that's going through, it's a little bit of a sticking point. So what do you suggest from town planning point of view?
2: strictly from a planning point of view that that part of the building is is unlawful so you're committing a development offense under the act so in theory if you buy it the next day council could come in and say you're not allowed to have that structure there and then the result is you have to either lodge an application and try to get it approved or dismantle it so if you did lodge an application the issue becomes you're pretty much doubling the gross floor area of that tenancy, which doubles the requirements for car parking, infrastructure charges, and a whole range of other things. So then you kind of, not only are you going to have to pay more for infrastructure charges, which could be, you know, 20 grand just for that, you've then potentially got an issue where council just won't approve it because you're increasing the demand. So you've got to imagine if there's a row of warehouses, for example, and there's a thousand square meters of floor area that council approved, so they've given you 10 car parks, if everyone puts in a mezzanine and now that 1,000 square meters is now 2,000 square meters, then the demand on the car parking should really be 20 car parks, but you've only got 10. So now they're all, they're going to sprawl out onto the street. And then if that happens up the entire street, then you've got a big problem. So, so that's kind of what council tried to stop happening. So that's my official advice. You should trigger an application <laughs> and that adds some risk to your project. And your buy and your purchase. It also would give you your negotiating power and things. So you can say, look, you've spoken to a planner, you understand that this is unlawful and that will add a lot of risk and you're taking on that risk. My unofficial advice is like you said, there's 90% of buildings have them in there, 90% of them are not lawful, but and council know and they just turn a bit of a blind eye to it. The reason that these things come up is one, people buying the property. So that's where it comes up a lot. And the only other time that really someone will get in trouble for it and have to do something is if someone complains about it. It's a complaint driven system. So, and that happens pretty rarely because everyone's got them. So so it's like if you complain (laughs) about the neighbors' one, then they're going to complain about yours and then you're both screwed. So, generally,
1: (laughs) that's the thing. I mean, we see these all the time in doing acquisitions of these smaller units. My response has been well, it's kind of setting a precedent. Because if somebody does complain about it, it's going to set off a domino effect where 90% of the units on the Gold Coast are going to be condemned. Yep. You know, So realistically, is council going to do that? they
2: They have before, but it eventually went away. They did it with gyms once. So there's a lot of gyms in industrial areas which are unlawful. So someone made a complaint against about all of them on the Gold Coast council started investigating literally all of them and we're getting a couple of phone calls a day with people getting these notices from council and then it, it just all went away and, I, and no no one knows what happened but no <laughs> one's complaining so so i, I would think that that it would be what would happen like immediately mm-hmm. you have the entire industrial sector being in trouble and then yeah
0: so no, Mish, no. i wanted to actually turn that question back to you as well if you find a property and the mezzanine isn't approved, should you really be paying for that square meterage in the end value, or would you try and negotiate that the lease is actually lower, so I should have a, a value should actually be brought back down to a different number?
1: Well, it's quite a fine line there, Andrew, because nine times out of 10, if the mezzanine floor is not certified, they can't claim it as lettable area. So generally, they don't claim it as a letable area, but we have had a number of issues in the past where buyers don't want to buy the building because it's not certified. And as Alex just said, to get it certified is kind of going to set off a whole domino effect in terms of parking, transport, various other issues. So it's very dependent on the buyer whether they're going to be a stickler and push on. And generally, if they are, then I just say, hey, pull out of the deal. Let's find another deal where it's, there's going to be no sticking point. And the next Joe Blogs is going to come along, buy the property, be as happy as forever, because realistically, it's all about the tenant. And you find that nine times out of 10 that the tenant has requested to put in a structure and they've gone ahead and, and done it. Either they ask for it or they don't ask for it and they just put it in. So I um, guess
0: it's you have to check if the net lettable area that's being advertised if that includes it in that mezzanine or not and then you can make your decision from there.
1: Correct. And if it is a mezzanine that is not on plan, then they cannot be charging for it as part of the net lettable area. So yeah, I,
0: bet, I bet they do though. It's <laughs> a <is the> bonus. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's a negotiation point. It's something that you can negotiate because the fact that it's not certified, if, as Alex says, you can purchase that property and tomorrow, the day after it's settled, you can have counsel on your back to either pull it down or to get it certified, and you're looking down the barrel of a couple of thousand dollars to have that done. So, in negotiation, you can bring that up, and it's a negotiation point.
0: Yeah. And Alex, I mean... I understand why net lettable area results in how many car parks you use for like a gym, right? Because they're going to have, if they increase the net lettable area, they can bring more people in. But if you're creating a mezzanine, it's not always like you're going to actually be having someone operate and work there. So you might not be bringing an extra person in. You're just using it for storage. Why does the NLA always result in, in more car parking when you're not actually bringing more people onto the facility or into the facility to actually work?
2: Yeah, well, that's pretty much the way that we get them approved. So we say, you yeah. know, as much as they're increasing the floor area, this is the business. They don't need it because they need more space for people. They need just more storage. So we generally get them approved. But the reason why they ask for that is because council, unfortunately, have to, every time they make a decision, account for the absolute worst thing to happen. <laughs> so yeah. So they kind of have to account for, if it's a warehouse right now and they just use that for storage, that's fine. But what happens if They leave tomorrow and then the next day it gets filled up with a low impact industry where they're manufacturing car parts and they have one person per five square meters working at a station and it fills up the entire building and you've got double the amount because it's got a mezzanine. So they kind of have to account for the absolute worst case scenario, but generally logic will prevail and and the majority of the time it would be just for additional storage. So that's how we get them approved.
0: The logic only, part really happens probably in Queensland. It doesn't always happen in New South Wales, I'm telling you right now.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always happen here either. <laughs> but, you know, like I can't remember the last time we had a, an issue with a mezzanine level, put it that way.
0: That brings me to my next question is why is the zoning different in every single state? Wouldn't it be easier just to have one blanket zoning across Australia to make oh. it a lot more streamlined for everyone involved?
2: Oh, how would I get paid if that was the case? (laughs) In New South Wales, for example, you've got one central place that kind of has a a zoning that goes over the whole state. In Queensland, we don't even have that. Every single council has their own set of zones, and all of them are different. So, like, in Brisbane, we have, like, low-density zone. In Moreton Bay, we have general residential. So, yeah, it's a nightmare. I honestly, I think it's just terrible... Like, no one's pulled it all together. And I think the problem is just the different departments. So it's like you've got different levels of government. So you've got local government, state, and then federal, and then Commonwealth above that. So you've kind of got all these different levels of government. And, I mean, trying to get people to cooperate amongst their own government is difficult. And then trying to get it to happen Mm -hmm. between every single local and state government and then negotiating that at a federal level would be just impossible. The other reason is... The requirements of a planning scheme in Sydney is very different to what it would be in Brisbane, which is very different to what it would be in Perth. So it's just, I can't see it ever happening, unfortunately, but certainly at a, a state level, every state government should have a central planning portal, in my opinion, and if they don't like Queensland doesn't, it's it's a bit of a shit show. I mean, sorry, (laughs) I don't know if I'm meant to swear, but it's a bit of a bad outcome. (laughs)
0: So which states with the best online tools to the worst online tools? Because realistically, like, I'd prefer to go and do something in the states that have really good online tools.
2: Yep. So I obviously, I'm a planner, so I've dabbled around around the uh, country, but the majority of the work we do is in Queensland. But knowing the other tools, I'm going to say, by far, New South Wales has the best tools. Just having one portal with everything that you can kind of look at all of the councils in one place is just amazing. I'm going to say the worst by far is Queensland. It's a nightmare. It's like the state mapping doesn't actually tell you anything. So we have a quick thing called Queensland Globe. And to make it work, you have to download data from your local councils and upload it into their system. Like they don't have like <laughs> a let's look at Brisbane's data sets. Like it doesn't have that. I think. New South Wales probably has the best statewide mapping, but in terms of local government tools, there's like Brisbane's tools are amazing. Like, once you get down to that local level, and I think that's maybe where Queensland does it a bit better than New South Wales uh, and Victoria because you go to some of the local council portals in New South Wales and it'll be like a PDF document and you have to kind of go through that and it takes forever. Whereas in Brisbane, you know, everything's digital. There's like three different websites you can use, three different mapping systems. They all do tell you different things. So, yeah, that's probably blabbering on, but (laughs) I'd say (laughs) New South Wales state, and then when it comes to local government, Queensland.
1: So that would be for Brisbane only, but not necessarily for Sunshine Coast or Gold Coast. You're talking about just Brisbane itself.
2: No, they're like just Queensland in general, like unless you start getting regional, most of the Southeast Queensland councils have a pretty good, mapping okay. software and imp- application inquiry tools like they all unfortunately have their own kind of proprietary system so none of them are the same but they're all pretty good it's only when you go kind of regional that it gets a bit more hands-on and you have to kind of call council and download the 400 page planning scheme and go through all the maps and find your property and it's yeah but no most of Queensland's pretty good
1: okay that's good to know what sort of problems do you come across in Brisbane? Which council should you avoid? Which are the worst? Let's say in Queensland.
2: That's a great question. I think it depends where you are and what you're doing. So we're based in Lotley like, in Brisbane. We have an office in Ipswich. So I would say like Brisbane's like pretty good, and I think Gold Coast is the worst. But people on the Gold Coast think that Brisbane's the worst. So it's a bit of a You know, depends where you are and what you're doing. But, you know, in my experience working for almost 20 years in development assessment in Queensland, unfortunately, I'm going to say that Gold Coast is the worst.
1: Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And regionally, Rockhampton, Townsville, Cairns, those areas, I mean, you mentioned earlier that they don't have the tools, so it's all manual. So that sounds like it's a bit of a pain in the butt. but I kind of get the feeling that those regional areas are a little bit more relaxed. About
2: yep. the, the rules. Spot on. Yeah, okay. I think once you get out of like the bigger business of South East Queensland, yeah. you know, if you end up in a regional area, generally their planning department will be, you know, four people. You can call the CEO or the mayor and talk to them about what you're trying to do. Like you get real outcomes that like based on the genuine community interests, whether it conflicts or like aligns or conflicts with the planning scheme. Whereas in in bigger business, being Gold Coast, Brisbane, Logan, Moreton Bay, like you've got, there's 300 people in Brisbane's planning department and <laughs> like some some of them have no idea what they're doing, some of them have a lot of idea of what they're doing and there's a lot of political influence, so it's all a bit crazy. So, yeah, I find that we love dealing with the regional areas and that's why we opened an office in Ipswich because that'll push us out that Western corridor.
1: Yeah, and you find, I think, uh, dealing with the bigger areas is it's kind of luck of the draw whoever you get on the phone on the other side on that day yeah exactly he's either and in fact we've had that experience in the past I've had clients giving me some very negative feed well feedback that's very negative from council and i've just said to them listen just forget about it today tomorrow phone back again tomorrow see who you speak to (laughs)
2: it's (laughs) like it sounds like we're making it up but like it is spot on like yeah (laughs) Depends, yeah. And you could talk to the same person, and it's happened, you know. Talk to the same person a week apart, and their opinion about something's completely different. So it's yeah,
1: just,
2: yeah. It's a bit of a flip of a coin with certain things.
1: Alex, do you deal with Victoria at all? We talk about Sydney and we talk about Queensland, but Victoria hasn't come into it. Do you deal much? Um, do you do anything in Victoria? To be honest,
2: no, we don't. I've done a little bit of strategic planning kind of stuff in that area but no not in 10 years planning schemes are generally written the same and the ideas are the same concepts are the same so throw me in there and i could definitely float but if you got me to throw me in a court or something to argue with a barrister about something then i would much prefer to be in queensland
1: (laughs) well (laughs) we'd hope it wouldn't go so far
2: no never
1: (laughs) which brings me to another point just having a look over a site and let's say in due diligence, we've actually got one currently that we're busy looking at. What does something like that cost for your services just to have a look at it and give us the pros and cons?
2: Yeah, it really just depends on the level of input that you want. So I would say 90% of the time, if you're buying a site and you just want to plan it to quickly check it, we do that for free. So if you email us and one of our team will have a look at it and get back to you and say, you know, looks fine, go for it. And then the other 10%, we might say, looks fine, but there's this one particular issue that might require further investigation. And then the cost there is, is kind of hourly. So it could cost anywhere from 100 bucks to generally around $1,200 okay, with a, so, a week turnaround. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, when your time starts ramping up, that's when the clock starts ticking.
2: Yeah, so if it's something like we're happy to look at something, but if it's like we looked at it and that's now gonna require a phone call and a meeting, you know, a review and a you yeah, blah, 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 then that's when it's not just us having a quick look anymore, it's like spending half a day on it. So that's when we start charging.
0: Okay. Well that's pretty handy that you get um you get a free a free little look though. That's pretty good. I I like that.
2: Yeah, email's the best way to do it. Phoning and inquiry in is always very difficult for us because it notoriously ends up with nothing to do with planning. It's kind of like, like, can I operate my shop here? And I'm like, yep. And they go, okay, cool. If I change the color of the window, I'm like, not, not me, not me. And they're like, well, well, do I need a? What happens if I? Di- and I'm like, no, nope, no. Nope. I answered everything I can tell you in the first five seconds, and now I'm on the phone for half an hour. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. Email's always the best way.
0: Yeah. So for the listeners who don't understand Brisbane City Council planning compared to, like, say, New South Wales, like Sydney planning. I can only speak from experience in, in New South Wales, like where we, we use a overarching zoning, but in each individual council in New South Wales, they have their own views on what's actually permissible using that zone. Is that how it is in Brisbane City Council as well? Or is it just basically, this is the zone, this is the uses?
2: No. So that's why I was saying state government-wise, it's better in New South Wales, but local government, it's better here. So we don't have a state like adopted zoning each council has their own planning scheme, which has their own zones, which has its own land uses that you can operate in those areas. So each council has its own zoning. So it kind of makes it very straightforward from a site investigation point of view. Whereas, yes, I have done a bit of work in New South Wales and you're like, oh, this property is in a mixed use zone. Four, that means I can do this. And then you look at the local environmental plan or the development control plan. It's like, oh no, that this local councils remove the ability to do that?
0: So, I mean, I'll just try and explain that just as easily as possible. So I guess in Brisbane City Council, it's a very, very big area where there's no like Sydney City Council. They're all different councils, all split up into sections all around Sydney. So I could say in Blacktown, for instance, I might be able to develop a self-storage facility in IN1. Well, if I go over to Parramatta, in im one it doesn't necessarily mean I can do it there as well. Their council has their own set of preferences and permissible uses for im one zone, which aren't the same as every other single council in Sydney or New South Wales. So you have to really dig down to the council level to understand what they want, not just a a statewide level.
2: Yeah, so it's the same here, but the thing is we don't have the statewide level zones, so it's a lot more straightforward because it's like You're not going to get misled and go, oh, I can do a self-storage facility here. It's like, well, and it changes per area because there is no same zone per area. So you just go straight to the local council and and have a look at it there. The other difference is, look, the size of our council regions up here are massive. Brisbane would be like the size of probably 50 councils in Sydney. So 100 kilometres north of the city and you're in a centre zone you're still in Brisbane, you go 100 kilometres south and you're probably still in Brisbane and the same centre zone applies. So it's it gets a bit more straightforward.
1: Alex, I'm just thinking in terms of time frame, because I know the different councils uh, vary from one time to another as well. What sort of time frame should we allow if we're going for change of use or rezoning of land?
2: Yeah, generally one to three months. If it's a bit more complicated, I'll just say up to six months. If it goes over six months, it's generally because... There'll be a consultant in the team that's dragging their feet or the client's changing their mind or something. So if you're proactively doing it and pursuing the change of use approval, then generally, yeah, one to three months. If it's complicated and requires public consultation, then about six.
1: Okay. We've had it in the past where we've put in for change of use and there are various different steps that you go through. And I'm thinking of one building in particular that we were doing where we went through the first three stages And the town planner actually said to us, look, you need to apply for the fourth stage, but don't worry about it because council are probably just going to put it in file 13. And that was the most expensive part of the stage. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. was, We did it a couple of years ago. And I do know that that building with that tenant still hasn't gone through that process and nobody has raised an eyebrow.
2: So, yeah, there's certainly statutory timeframes and the process is very structured. But in terms of just completely skipping a part of the process, no. I mean, there's certainly things you can get away with not doing, like there'll be conditions of the approval and it'll say, like the perfect example is footpaths. So, you know, if you do a development council might say, go for it, but you have to do like an awning and a footpath and then notoriously Mm. people don't do the footpath and then, they approve it anyway, and council never followed them up. So they got away with it, but not that doesn't really happen anymore. But no, I'm completely skipping a part of the process. Not,
1: yep, that's not. pretty much what it was. If I remember correctly, it was about gardening and it was about footpaths and. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, they probably just went, Is council really going to check in on this? Probably not. So nah. let's just not do it. And if they come by and realize, then we'll just do it at that point. So let's just keep our head down and try to save some money and get operating faster.
1: Yeah, and just keep moving. I do yeah. know that that one in particular has just gone under the radar and we've just left it as is. No questions asked. And that was three or four years ago. So, And sometimes
2: on. that's the best way. Like as much as, yes, you are doing something wrong, but everyone's doing something wrong. And planning so complicated these days that it's easier to say that you didn't know that you're doing something wrong so and and generally the in Queensland anyway if you get caught doing the wrong thing there's no immediate fines or anything it's just you know council go well you've done something wrong now you need to fix it and fixing it might be lodging the application that you were meant to lodge originally anyway <laughs> so mm-hmm. as long as you're not like grossly taking advantage of the system council's pretty um they don't want to be shutting people's businesses down that's for sure
1: no, it's a little bit of a slap on the wrist and pay the due. In fact, I kind of get the, the impression from counsel that they just want you to pay for it and disappear.
2: Yes. Well, <laughs> it's true. It. If there's a show cause issue, like it's bad. Like it's bad for business for them to be going into small businesses and shutting them down over little things. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a that's front page of career News. mail kind of stuff. Yeah. So they don't want to be doing that. So generally when there's a complaint, they lawfully have to deal with that complaint. But most of the time they just want it to go away so yeah you pay your fees you go through the process they give you an approval and off you go that's that problem solved
1: yeah so um i know a lot of people when they think of council they think oh they don't want to deal with council but actually council they're pretty friendly and very helpful if you are doing the right
0: thing
2: yep spot on the yeah. keywords there if you're doing the right thing if you're not doing the right thing that's when they'll go after you
0: i hope you're enjoying the show we'll be right back after this short break Are you struggling to put together a wealth plan? Revolve Commercial have designed an eight question process that generates a personalized 12 month wealth growth plan and it's free. I gotta check this out myself. Go to www.revolvecommercial.com.au to get your personalized wealth growth plan free today
1: with regards change of use we've had a couple of issues and i just wanted to ask you a little bit around for instance an industrial building that previously did let's say glass and aluminium and now they're doing glass and plastic mm-hmm. now that required a change of use which came as a little bit of a surprise yeah can you talk us around that a little bit
2: yeah it's a very complicated space like most of the time uses change and they just change here and there and they kind of evolve over time and council don't necessarily care but every now and then there's certain definitions under the planning scheme that can require different approvals and different zones to be in and probably like the classic one is if you're distilling alcohol so you're if you run like a gin bar and you happen to be so that's a commercial food and drink outlet use and then you just put a small little distilling section of it, and it's only 10 square meters in size, and you're just distilling your own gin. That now becomes a medium impact industrial use. Like, so, the, so this is just general, you know, this isn't exactly yeah. accurate. But then all of a sudden, you're actually, it's not a commercial use anymore. It's an industrial use because you're distilling alcohol, which is flammable and dangerous, good and, and whatnot. And if you then go, well, this is going pretty well, let's... um we're starting to now manufacture more than 10,000 litres a year, you actually then bump all the way up to a special industrial use, which is like the same category as a nuclear power facility. Well, it's not, but it's like right up there with like burning BP's oil refineries. Yeah, so it's one of those things that like changing the use over time can certainly trigger more approvals. But I always tell people to take the logical approach and think, you know, if your neighbour was doing that, Would you have an issue with it? And if you were like, yes, I would definitely have an issue with it, then that should spark some interest to call a town planner, call us or call the local planner and say, look, this is what I'm doing. Is that a problem? And then we can, you know, we can say, yes, it is a problem. Here are your options. And the options would probably be, let's apply for it or just leave it and keep going. And if you get a complaint, give us a call back.
1: Yeah. I mean, in that instance, it would definitely be volumetric based. where Yeah. One can understand if your business is changing from a supply to a manufacturing, that would definitely call for, I guess, some sort of change of use.
2: Yep, definitely. And there's a lot of intricacies there. But yeah, you're right. If if you're just a warehouse and you're just supplying things, that's a warehouse. But then if you start manufacturing things, you're going from a warehouse to an industrial use. And then Mm -hmm. if you start selling them with a shop at the front, you now have a shop, which is a commercial use. So just being mindful and listening to things like this is where you figure these things out. The more knowledgeable you are about planning and about property, then the more you're not going to open yourself up for failure. So the fact that you now have listened to this and you know that planning exists and there's all these issues, then you know that when things happen in the future, you're going to de-risk
1: it all. With regards that, changing property and changing use of property, what would be the most valuable change of use, let's say? from property A to property B? What have you seen that would add the most value to a property?
2: Yeah, very good question. I think probably going from residential to commercial, I would say that if you can get a bunch of properties that are in a like a low-density residential area and convert them to be commercial, then mm. you'll be winning a lot there. The issue is that's a very difficult thing to, thing to achieve depending on where you are, but but yeah, I would say going from residential to commercial, in, in my mind, would be the, the win.
1: I was going to say it's probably a matter of being in the right place at the right time because if you're purchasing residential, knowing that the town or the, the infrastructure is growing in the direction of commercial, you could be purchasing on the fringe. I always call it the grey area mm-hmm. where obviously within a couple of years, the zoning is going to change and it changes into commercial changes into a mixed type of zoning which allows you to now produce something else
2: yeah and we've seen it mm. like i've I've done inquiries for people who have said i want to start like a big boarding house and i've gone look in the zone you are it can't happen and then six years later they call back and be like hey we spoke ages ago about this I have recently got a letter saying that my zone's changing. I just thought I'd give you a call and check. And then I look and their zone's changed to like District Centre where they can build five-storey apartment buildings now and mixed <laughs> use and commercial. And I'm just like, couldn't this happen to me? Like, what has got <laughs> so, But it was because, like you just said, they in that little grey fringe around like they were kind of five properties away from some commercial area. And I wouldn't have thought that that was going to happen. But, yeah, it did. So, super
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I think, sorry, Andrew, you wanted to say?
0: I was going to say, but even just changing the use inside uh, the commercial zoning as well, it's so powerful because when you can find a a property that's a use that has a higher rate per square meter, if you can change it from that lower rate per square meter that you're charging to that higher rate per square meter, you can increase value so much. And that's where some of the the greatest power of commercial property is it's just that it's factored in, um, to the rate per square meter and then capitalized with the capitalization rate. So,
2: yeah, no, on.
0: I
1: mean, it's so long as your cost of change of use is not absorbing whatever that change of use is,
0: yeah, that's you know, right. Yeah,
1: if you're going to be paying fifty thousand dollars to change of use, but it's only going to be adding a couple of dollars to your cost per square meter, well, then it's a no brainer, it's not worth doing it. But you know, if it's yeah. going to you're gonna be adding a couple of hundred K then yeah for sure, you know. And again, I think being in the right place at the right time.
0: And you'd and also have to factor in the different capitalization rate per sector as well. So it might be like say a six and a half cap for office in that space, but because industrial mm-hmm. is so hot right now, it might be five and a half cap. So you really have to kind of factor in so many different aspects and do a feasibility on whether it's gonna be profitable or not.
2: And knowing about the planning issue, so it's not only the fact that you have to pay for the planning permit and the change of use, it's that you will then possibly get hit with things like infrastructure charges. So some planners won't even tell you about those and then you just get a bill at the end for 50 grand and you, you had no idea. So just being aware of planning and, and possible issues and permits, then you'll be um, ahead of the game.
0: Have you ever had any experience like actually changing the land zone and how that actually works?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's called something different in every state region, but up here it's called a variation request. So you're essentially changing, you're varying the planning scheme. It's a very difficult thing to do. So if you, for instance, had a row of houses and you wanted to say, well, let's change this into a commercial zone, you essentially have to demonstrate to council why they were wrong. And then you've got to think, well, they've got a budget of $20 million to make their planning scheme and you somehow have to convince those people that they stuffed up. So it's pretty hard to do for that. But where we do a lot of it is in kind of greenfield emerging community zones where council have kind of allocated a big area to say, we don't know what to do in this area, but it's eligible for development. You show us what we should let you do. And then you'd go in and put it in a structure plan or a master plan for the whole region and say, this area will be low density. This area will be commercial because of these reasons. So we do quite a bit of that in emerging community zones, probably not to a massive scale, more kind of corner <laughs> corner of a, a region, just to say, you know, this is emerging community, but we want to change it to low density. But yeah, it's very valuable doing that, but it just depends on the circumstances as to when and why you can.
0: So I'd imagine that rural zoning as well would be one of those ones where potentially it could be changed pretty easily because a rules similar to Greenland.
2: Yep, so there's for instance in Brisbane there's a whole bunch of rural land up through Bridgeman Downs that under the neighborhood plan is actually there's a note there that says they will entertain development of the rural area if there's infrastructure and in, in a reason. So now we're seeing the infrastructure's there so all these rural zones are now getting rezoned to low density by developers.
0: Mm. Yeah, nice. With the zoning changes, do you have any tips for the listeners and also Mission I? of how we can keep up to date with, with zoning changes so we can get ahead of it? Yeah, for sure. It's tricky
2: because each council has their own way to keep people updated, but if you just go to whatever local council you're looking in and just you know search town planning updates or amendments and then they'll usually have a, uh, email, a place to sign up and then they'll email you about it when it, there's an uh, upcoming amendment. So that's the best way to do it. And then that way, every single time something gets proposed to change, because usually there's a lead time, like they'll say, we want to change this. And then six months to two years after they will change it. So you kind of get a bit of a heads up and then that might present some new opportunities for you.
0: Yeah, because I mean, if you can get ahead of it, because usually like that type of land we're talking about, your rural and your greenfield, that's a lot cheaper in that zone at that time. So if you can get ahead of it and know that it's going to be changed into, say, like a residential zone where you could subdivide it into a lot smaller blocks. As you guys know, it, it increases the value of that land by whoever knows, but it could be tenfold considering. Yep.
1: yep. There are also a couple of apps that are out there. I know, like My Neighborhood, I think is one oh, of yeah. the apps where you can just jump onto and see what's happening in the area and, and where they're releasing green fields. So it's a little bit more informal, but they're giving you secondary information from city councils.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of things like that. I think Logic have something along those lines that tells you when amendments are going to happen. I've never used it, but I have seen things around.
1: Okay. Alex, lovely little question here. What are the biggest mistakes that people make in commercial?
2: I think just not being aware, and this is obviously from a planning point of view, Um, just not being aware of what is approved there. It happens so often where people are like, I bought this property, it was a shop, and I want to turn it into a veterinary clinic. I thought, and the agent told me that that would be fine. And they've gone to get some permit and like their noise permit or something. And then council's gone, hang on, you can't have a veterinary clinic here. That requires an approval. Then everything gets put on hold for like six months. So that's probably the biggest mistake that we see. And that's like one phone call could have solved that problem if they just talked to a town planner, but just no one in that whole process did that. So, which is. Crazy to me as a town planner doing this, but anyway, it happens all
1: the time. yes, absolutely and and for time frame to do that, I mean, what are the chances of them actually getting approval for a veterinary clinic after it being an office, let's say?
2: yeah, are oh, pretty high. It'd just be you know when it's something like that, council just want council will generally trigger and em- like changes of use in those kinds of circumstances if it's a use that might produce more noise or or impact on people's amenity. so so long as you lodge an application and show that that's not the case, then generally it's not a problem. So, like, if, if it was a veterinary clinic, for example, you'd just say that they, it would probably be the case that they couldn't have overnight stays of animals.
1: So, in other words, if you've got a good town planner, you'd be able to get, get it over the line, all right? Spot on. <laughs> <laughs> all you go. need is
2: a good town planner. I don't know where you'd find one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, well, maybe Andrew knows of a good one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, mate, in terms of the office sector in Brisbane, it's been one of the the worst hit due to COVID. Can you really share some potential uses for the big office towers that are vacant in Brisbane that we might be able to action?
2: I haven't been involved in any of these, but I have heard of some of these office towers turning into residential. Mm -hmm. Mm. So converting... The whole floor from commercial to residential, which, yeah, is certainly something that should be possible and really shouldn't be that much of a problem from a planning point of view. I think the issues would come into it from a building code compliance point of view, but generally commercial is harder than industrial. So you'd assume that it it would work. But that's probably where as soon as COVID hit, we had a lot of phone calls like that. But yeah, it's kind of died off a little bit now. But I think that's probably really almost the only opportunity for those big buildings
1: and Alex, do you know if anybody's actually gone ahead with doing that in um, these big buildings?
2: Not that I'm aware of. I know that I definitely saw something about it. I'm just not sure. I think it might have just been like a some planner did a hypothetical s- scenario of what these buildings could be used for. So no, I'm not sure. But yeah, I'm sure if I get on Google, I
1: could probably find something. Yeah. <laughs> The reason I'm asking is because we had that suggestion. We looked into that at one stage and working with a a developer, he just said to me that the infrastructure in an office is just so different to what the requirement would be to turn it into domestic, to turn Mm. it into into dwellings. I mean, he was talking about something as simple as the garbage, the lifts, the security around uh, putting those sort of dwellings in from commercial into residential.
2: Yeah, so that's probably right. So, like, from a land use perspective, go for it. From, like, a building regulation and servicing point of view, that's where you might run into your problems. So, so, you know, like, are the walls thick enough for fire, noise separation, Do you have enough lifts to meet the demand of people living there opposed to working there? Yeah, there's all those other problems, which which are somewhat planning issues, but probably more things that we just need to account for and are less regulated for.
1: Yeah, what they were saying is it's almost easier to strip those buildings right down, just to strip them out, and then to basically rebuild them without having to rebuild them because you've got your structures and you've got your concrete floors. But you're reinstalling all the amenities that uh, residential would require. So it's great. Yeah, okay,
2: okay. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah.
1: We've seen one or two of those going through. I don't know how successful they've been and with they've what sort of profit has come out of it at the end of the day, I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's still pretty
0: early days.
2: Yeah. No, it'd be interesting to see what happens, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, This looks like a good time to move into the next segment of the show, the Fire Round. Welcome to the Fire Round. In this segment, we are going to ask the same four questions to each guest every episode. So, uh, Mish, do you want to kick it off with your first Fire Round question?
1: Absolutely. An absolute gem here. Alex, if you could read only one book in your life, you've only got the opportunity to read one book. What book would it be?
2: Can it be a series? (laughs) I was was like, that's a hard question. No, I think. Sure. I think you'd probably realistically be Lord of the Rings or something. But I think that there's one book in particular that changed my life called The E-Myth, that book, like if I could be like in my business life, you're only allowed to read one book, not allowed to read anything more about business. That would be the book.
0: And that actually Um, is a series, you know, The E-Myth. Is it? Yeah, oh. yeah. So there's the e-myth accounting, the e-myth for real estate, being a real estate agent. He's done a whole um, bunch of different ones. We... The... Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh,
2: wow. There you go. I've only ever read the first one, what, whichever one. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't it might yeah. not have even you, been you, the first You
1: probably one. only read the one that was the e-myth for time planning. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: it. <laughs> 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 Very specific. He's really gone down some rabbit holes there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, mate. So if the next question, if you had $1 million deposit right now and you had to invest it tomorrow or you would lose it to the tax man, where would you invest it and what would you invest it in?
2: I would probably buy some property in regional areas, whether it be commercial or residential, and just sit it there for 50 years until I want to retire. So I'd probably do that. And then with whatever money I had left over, I'd probably put it into Bitcoin. <laughs> and hopefully, do the same thing in fifty years.
1: Hmm. Okay, that's brazen in the in the face of what's happening around the world at the moment.
2: <laughs> yeah, yep. I'm a I'm a I'm a closet crypto nerd.
1: Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> that's it, for another conversation. Yeah, that's
2: a whole other thing. <laughs>
1: so, Alex, if you lost everything that you owned and you had to start all over again, what would your first move be in starting all over?
2: Wow. I would for sure still be a town planner. I love what I do. I would probably start the same way that I did originally, which is just, you know, buy a laptop, set up a website, learn how to do all of that myself, you know, start hustling people to get some work. The key difference, I think, if I was doing it all over again, would be to charge for what I'm worth immediately. Like even now, we struggle with that. Like, really, we should be charging 20 grand, but we only get paid five. <laughs> so I think immediately I'd be like, from the get go, starting all yeah. over again my first move is if you don't want to pay i don't want you as my client so, fair <laughs> so
0: enough. Yeah. pretty fair enough <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right mate so apart from town planning what are some of your other favorite hobbies i've
2: cycled so i'm a avid uh, uh bike packer and an adventurer so i really i really enjoy getting out there and you know adventuring camping um, all of that stuff so that's so probably we- one of them
1: cycling you go for cycle tours
2: yeah yeah. So i've been the length of japan south korea new zealand all through australia so i really enjoy there's nothing more freeing than just getting to an airport with a bag with a a bike box and a couple of bags in there and then you just build your bike and then off you go and then in two weeks time or whatever you have to be at another airport and everything in between is just completely up to you and your bike And you get to go slow, so you get to absorb yourself with all the culture and the people. So, yeah, it's lovely. I really like doing it. And it's just a good escape. Like, my job is sitting behind a computer, you know, arguing with bureaucrats. So, you know, it's like, it's good to, like, get out there and just be free sometimes. Now with the family, it gets a bit more difficult, but they like it too. So it works out.
0: How many many fire puncher kits do you pack with that one?
2: Yeah, good question. I usually take two spare tubes and a spare tire, depending on where I'm going, if I'm going to split a tire open. And then, yeah, just usually just one puncture repair kit. So, but I've never, to be honest, in my entire time doing this, I've had like two punctures. Yeah. <laughs> like going around Brisbane, I have like, I have one every other, like every other week. But yeah, traveling globally, it's like I've only had a couple
1: you've <laughs> been lucky you've been very lucky
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah but other than cycling yeah I'm, I'm into my um crypto and nft so i actually have an nft project around based Ooh. around cycling and then i fly fpv drones which is a pretty nerdy weird thing that i do so that's uh like drone racing is something that i do it's, a pretty, it's a pretty weird hobby so yeah that's uh that's good fun i don't get to do it as much as i'd like because it's pretty full-on but yeah
0: we might have that's to get you back on to talk about crypto and some NFTs and stuff because that's uh, an interesting topic that is um, a very, very big topic as well that needs to be um, unpacked. You can't understand that in one conversation.
2: No, but yeah, I think over the next couple of years, NFTs specifically will become a big part of property, undoubtedly. So
0: the Smart yeah. contracts.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. smart contracts. And then just like the non-fungible tokens, having transparent ledger of data and and property titles and... Ownership details and just everything like leasing agreements. I can't see a world where, in the future, where that's not going to be listed on some blockchain as as some form of Mm. smart contract or NFT.
1: Bring it on. Bring it on. We'll have
0: to book you in for (laughs) another podcast down the
1: line.
2: Oh, that'll be. How long are we allowed to go for? You got a couple of hours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, mate. So, you've also prepared a free giveaway the ultimate town planning checklist for the listeners to download. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So I think everything we've talked about is, it's very overwhelming. It's even overwhelming for me. I'm very tired now. Um, So what I did was I put together a checklist of the key things that people should be looking at when buying commercial property from a town planning point of view. So things that I personally would never buy property without checking. So yeah, happy to give that to people. So You know, you don't necessarily need to learn about everything. You just need to know what you need to know. And that's what this checklist is for.
0: Awesome. So if you'd like to download that, go to revolvecommercial.com.au forward slash TPC. And you can download it from there. Or you can click in the link in the show notes. I'll put the link in there so you can just go straight to it. So, mate, last question. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you?
2: Yep. LinkedIn is probably the best place you'll find me. I love LinkedIn. A lot of good conversation on there. So just search my name, Alexander Stefan. Stephan's spelt like the hairdresser, but with two Fs. Um, unfortunately, that's how I have to describe um, how to spell my last name. <laughs> or visit our website, Urpec, which is u r p e c dot dot com urpec.com.au, um, and you'll be able to contact me there and, and learn a lot more about
0: town planning and what I do. Awesome, mate. Today's guest has been Alex Stefan with two Fs. Cheers, mate. Awesome.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Cheers.
0: Cheers. All right. This has been Mish Daniel and Andrew Bean on the Revolve Commercial Podcast.
1: Where wealth revolves around you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Don't forget to check out their private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network.